This was the moment. The days of fasting were complete and it was time for Esther to approach the king. She put on her finest royal robes and began heading for the palace. As she approached the king's room, she could see Xerxes sitting on his throne. The king turned and saw Esther standing in the courtyard. With no hesitation, he extended his scepter towards her. He was pleased to see her. When Esther approached the throne, the king asked what it was she wanted. She could ask for anything, up to half of the kingdom, and it would be given to her. Esther asked the king if he and Haman could attend a dinner that she had prepared. The king immediately accepted. Xerxes quickly called for Haman so they could join Esther. As they were drinking wine, the king asked Esther what she really wanted. Esther replied that if it pleased the king, would he and Haman join her for a dinner again tomorrow? Then she would give a straight answer to the king. Again, the king said yes. That evening, as he left the palace, Haman was quite happy with himself. That is, until he saw Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. As Haman passed, Mordecai didn't even acknowledge him. Haman was furious, but he controlled his emotions and continued home. The moment he arrived, he called all his friends over. Haman was so full of himself that he began to brag about his boundless riches, all his sons and how great they were and how the king had glorified and promoted him above all the princes. To top it all off, he boasted how even Queen Esther must admire him. After all, why else would she invite him to not one, but two private dinners? There was just one problem, though, that kept stealing his joy. Mordecai. How could he enjoy Esther's dinner when he knew Mordecai was still at the king's gate? Haman's wife spoke up. Have a gallows, 75 feet high made, and in the morning, ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then, go joyfully with the king to the banquet. That was exactly what Haman wanted to hear. He gave the order to have the gallows constructed. Can you pass me those berries? Well, good morning. It's good to be with you guys. Uh, my name is Kevin Ewell. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And welcome to all of you in the chapel and over in the venue and all of you at Cactus and all of you up north. I miss you guys. I'll be back up there, but it's good to be down here with you. And uh, we're picking up Esther chapter 5. We've been going through this series. You know, it's been all about the providence of God, God's providence in the midst of all things. And I was laughing with some of the pastors this week. Providentially, God gave me chapter 5, uh, where most, chapter, most commentators sandwich 5 and 6 together because it's like Esther goes, hey, we're going to have a banquet, and then we're going to have another banquet tomorrow. So I, I thought about coming up here and saying... Now we conclude Esther 5, come back next week and you'll hear about what it's all about. Because that's kind of what she does, right? She sets this whole thing up, the king's there and she goes, eh, maybe tomorrow I'll tell you. Uh, but let's make some sense of Esther chapter 5. And so here's what I need us to do uh, before we even dive into the text. I need you to put yourself in this girl's situation. I need you to put yourself in, in where she's at. She is risking her life for the sake of others. And I don't know, hopefully none of you have had to risk your life for the benefit of others, but maybe you've found yourself in a difficult, challenging, fear-ridden situation where you've got to confront somebody, maybe a spouse or your boss or a friend, and, and you are so worked up inside that you, you can hardly stand it, and you're just terrified of what's going to come. That's kind of where she's at. I'll give you a story from my, from my own life. I was 24 years old. I had a wife and two little girls at home, and I was a junior high pastor at a church. 
Uh, and I, I got hired by, by my boss at the time, an uh, incredibly talented man, a, a different leader. He kind of led by fear and control. In fact, the day that he hired me, I interviewed, I was scared to death, I'm there. Hey, I'd love to be your junior high pastor. He goes, hey, we're gonna offer you the job. And I just go, oh, thank you so much. And his closing statement to me was, don't make me regret this. So, that, I mean, that, if you want to talk about, all right, let's take the hill together. I'm fired up. I'm a part of the team. Like, that's, that's how we operated. Everything was kind of passive-aggressive. Like, you never knew where you stood. Uh, I watched this man fire people on the spot. Like, when you'd walk into his office, you'd walk out with a box, go pack your stuff up. You were gone, out, I mean, just out of nowhere. So I was very terrified on a particular Monday morning. I'll tell you what happened pre preceding that. Uh, I got this idea as a junior high pastor. Hey, let's do a big outreach event. Let's try and reach 1,600 students to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ on one night. That was my vision from the Lord. And so I got my high school pastor involved. I said, hey, what do you think about this? We got a, I got this great idea. He goes, man, that sounds awesome. Let's do it. So we're all in. 1,600 students. We're hoping to hear 1,600 kids hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the night of the event. I'm praying in my office, terrified that no one's going to show up for this thing. And I come out of my office, and I look out to the junior high check-in, and there is a mass of humanity like I've never seen before. 863 junior high students. You ever seen 863 junior high students without the supervision of parents and or teachers? I mean, they're all hopped up on Red Bull and Pixie Sticks. It was unbelievable. I'm sitting there like, oh my gosh, God, you did it. This is awesome. I walk over to the high school side. I grab the high school pastor. I go, man, you're never going to believe it. There's so many junior high kids here. How's high school looking? He goes, oh, it's great. There's 170 of them here. And I quickly do the math in my head, 863, 170, that's not even close to 1,600. So we do the event, the night goes on. I'm share the gospel, kids came to Christ. It was a beautiful night. But I'm sitting at our venue, sitting there doing the math in my head and I realize that this event, trying to reach this many students is gonna cost us $15,000 more than we had budgeted. And we weren't thriving at the time as a church and so this was a huge deal. So Saturday morning comes around, I sit down with the high school pastor, I go, look, we're, we're in the whole 15 grand, what are we gonna do? And he looks at me and says, well, this was your idea, you should go tell the big man. I'm like, what? My students showed up, yours didn't come, why am I the one that's gotta go sit on the sword? And he goes, well, it's your idea, you should do it. I said, all right. So it's Saturday at about 8.30 a.m. I don't eat from 8.30 a.m. until Monday afternoon about noon. And I would love to tell you that I was fasting in prayer, I just couldn't eat because I was on the verge of vomit the whole time, just anxious about what's going to happen. It was like all my fears came true. I, I was looking at my wife and kids, and I just heard the voices of all the people that said, you're too young to get married. You're too young to have kids. You shouldn't be a pastor. Like everything coming to fruition, realizing I was going to walk into this man's office, tell him this news. He was going to fire me, and I was out of ministry. I couldn't sleep Sunday night. I'm sitting there. I'm just anxious, so I get up. I get online and I start searching other church jobs, okay? Churchstaffing.com, this is the reality of my, my world. I'm like, South Dakota, that doesn't sound bad. Maybe we could go there. Uh, I then quickly shut that down. I thought, that's not good. God, my heart's not right. Uh, but quickly jumped to searching mobile homes because I thought maybe we could sell our house and just live in a van down by the river somewhere and then just live out life, stricken with fear. It's Monday morning. I'm sitting in my office. I got a box next to me. I brought a box from home, just knowing I was going to pack my stuff up. And I'm taking some deep breaths, and I'm just crying out, God, please, 
today, today's a good day to come back. Just Jesus, come back today. Now's the moment. Now's your time. Because I don't want to walk in and do this. Because I am just terrified. And I hear his voice as he walks in the office to greet some people. And my heart rate just jumped 300 beats a minute. And I'm just going, okay, God. I got to walk about 15 yards from my office to his office across the little courtyard area there. Probably took me about a half hour to make that walk because I was just stressed. Fear-stricken, thinking in my head, in my 24-year-old mind, and, and, and again, I know my theology is off, but in my, my understanding at the moment, I thought, this man holds my future in his hands. And what happens to me in the next 10 minutes is going to be uh, future and, and future-altering. I'm going to have to go home and look my wife and the kids in the eye, and all of, the, all of these fears grip me. So I walk into his office, and he just looks at me in his aggressive way and goes, what happened? So, oh, good to see you. Uh, we did our event, okay? And I said, and we're $15,000 over budget. And it was like, you ever had the flu? And you're like holding on, trying not to get sick, but then all of a sudden you finally throw up and you feel a whole lot better after that. As soon as I said the $15,000, it was like a weight was lifted from me. And it was like, okay, whatever happens, happens now. I did the hard part that's out there. And to my surprise, he was incredibly gracious. Hey, that's all right. We'll figure it out and worked with us together. And we, we got through it together. And, and it was all in my head how terrifying it was. But I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that where you've got to do something that just grips your soul and you're terrified. That's where Esther is. We're going to read this story in just a second. But she is about to put her life on the line. And so here's the question before we pray, before we get into the text that I want us to wrestle with a little bit here. What are we, what are you willing to risk for doing what's right. And I'm going to quantify doing what's right like Jamie defined it last week. You remember his definition? Doing what right is this, is, is whatever it costs you to be a benefit to others. Whatever it costs you, at great cost to you to be a blessing to others, what are you willing to risk? What's the cost you're willing to invest to be a blessing to others? Because that's what Esther's wrestling with here. Do I risk my life to save others? I got it pretty good here in the palace. I could probably go under the radar pretty easily. Am I willing to risk it for the benefit of others? What are you willing to risk for the, for the benefit of other people? Let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into our text this morning. God, I thank you for this beautiful gift you've given us in your word. God, you know my prayer has been and will continue to be that we would handle it correctly. I pray your spirit would speak to our hearts in a way that only you can. God, I pray you would get me so far out of the way that I would not hold you back from anything that you want to say or do this morning. God, I pray you would challenge us. I pray you would open our hearts and minds to what it is you would say. And God, I do, I do pray. Some of us walk in here, myself included, thinking it's just another Sunday, but God, this is your day, and this is the day that you want to change our hearts and change our lives, and so I pray that you would do that. I pray that you would show up and that you would get all the glory. We love you. We thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you heard Matt tell us earlier, we're in Esther chapter 5. I'm going to start in chapter 4 and look at a passage that Jamie read last week. But I want to set the stage of where we're at and what's going on. Uh, it's chapter 4, verse 16. Esther's talking to Mordecai. And she says this, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will do the same. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. She realizes what's at stake. 
If I die, I die. If it doesn't go well for me, that's all right. I'm all in. I'm committed. And so she fasts for three days. We're not told that she prays, but I can only imagine that entering her fast, she's in conversation with God. God, these are your people. Mordecai is telling me I need to do this, so I'm going to trust you in the midst of all of this. And if I die, I die. So then we pick it up in chapter 5, verse 1. It says this, On the third day, fast is now over, Esther put on her royal robes. And she stood in the inner courts of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance. And the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court. Now let's just pause right there. You know he's about to extend and she's going to find favor. But imagine you're this woman. If I perish, I perish. The fast is over. So she puts on her best royal robes. If I'm going out, I'm going to go out looking good, she's thinking. I don't know, okay? But her best royal robes. And she stands outside the door to the inner courts. And I can just picture her sitting there taking a couple of breaths. Okay. Here we go. And in she walks. And in that moment, she is all in. All in committed. Whatever happens next is completely out of her control. What do we know about this king? Well, we know that he banished his first wife for not dancing provocatively in front of his drunk friends. And then he signed an edict that Haman brings and goes, hey, I want to kill a couple million people. All right, that sounds like a good idea. Like this guy is, is not stable. He doesn't think rationally. He hasn't talked to his wife, the queen, in 30 days. She's got no relationship with this guy. It's, it's his way or the highway. And she takes a couple of deep breaths and she stands in the inner court. It's interesting that the author of Esther tells us she stands twice. She stood and then he saw her standing. Why is that important? Not only was it against the law to enter the inner courts without being summoned, punishable by death, it was also illegal to stand in the king's presence. He saw himself as a god. And you pay homage and you bow down to a God. And so to not bow was punishable by death. So here's Esther, all dressed up, looking nice, standing in the inner courts. I'm all in and I'm going to stand here. Why does she stand? We're not told. A lot of speculation. Maybe she's heard from her uncle Mordecai who has told her, hey, you don't bow for anyone other than God alone. And so she decides, look, I'm already all in. I'm already all in. I'm already relying on God to show up and do his thing. I'm not going to disrespect him by bowing to this man. And so she stands in the inner courts, willing to risk it all for the sake of others. What are we willing to risk? Here's, here's where I want to go with this. I'm going to make this statement. I think what you're willing to risk is directly linked to what you know and what you believe about God the Father. What you're willing to risk is directly linked to what you know and what you believe about God the Father. Because you see, if God the Father is a good Father, if He is a good God, if He, if he is all loving, if He loves you and you are His precious child, then when He asks you to do something, you don't go, well, maybe this might not work out for me. You go, God, you are so good. You are so awesome. How could I ever question your goodness? I will do what you ask, what you, what you require of me, what you're asking of me, uh, what you long for me to do to benefit others because you are a good Father. And if we know that, and we believe that, it gets easier to move. How about this one? Do we live with an eternal perspective, or are we so stuck on the here and now? This, this as Larry Crabb puts it, this smaller story that's taking place in our lives. Paul says what? We are citizens of heaven, not citizens of earth. 
And so when we get consumed by the here and now, it gets really easy to get focused on Kevin's journey and Kevin's story and what's best for me. How, how can I survive today, right? It's, it's, it's what can I get for myself? But if I peel back and go, God, this is such an instant in comparison to eternity. I wanna live my life to glorify you, to please you. What, is it you. what is it you need from me? You need me to do something to be a blessing to others? I'm in. Because my head's not stuck in the here and now, it's focused on eternity. Do we allow ourselves to dream of eternal things, to think of the future and to find our hope in that? And does that motivate us here and now? What's First John tell us? God is, starts with an L, ends with of, right? God is love. He is love at the very core of his being. He is love. And so he asks his people, his children, his sons and his daughters, would you go love the world around you? It may cost you something. It may cost you a lot. But are you willing to do it because you know your father and you know he is good and you know he has great things in store for you, not only now but in eternity? And can we risk it, what seems like a risk to us, to be a blessing to others? See, Esther's all in. She has no idea what's about to happen. King could off with her head in the moment, but she's all in because she's willing to risk it all for the sake of others. What are we willing to risk? What are we willing to risk for the sake of others? Let's keep going. And he, the king, held out Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. I got to imagine it was like me going, okay, it's out there. I'm accepted. And so then she gets her chance. Look at verse 3. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even up to half the kingdom. She's got to be thinking, wow, this is going a lot better than I anticipated. Right? This, I, I, was, I thought I was going to die. Now I got half the kingdom at my disposal. This is awesome. It's teed up perfectly. In my world, this is, this is, this is going, I'm going, great, keep your kingdom. Kill Haman, save my people. Right? That would be my request. What does she do? She goes, hey, if it pleases the king, would you come to a banquet I've prepared today? Why does she do that? We're, we don't know. Commentators speculate all over the place in this whole chapter. We're not told. I'll stand way over here because this is Kevin's interpretation of what's going on, not the word of God. <laughs> Could it be? Have you guys ever found yourself in a situation like this? You know you've got to confront somebody. You know you've got to, maybe it's your spouse. There's tension. You know you've got to deal with it. It's a kid. There's tension. You know you've got to deal with it. Your boss. Well, insert anybody. Anybody ever have a conversation with that individual in their own mind without them even being present before? Man, I've had some of the best fights with my wife just driving home without her even in the car. She's going to say this, I'm going to say this, and then she's going to come back with this, but then I got her trapped and I'm going to say this. I mean, it's awesome. I win every time. It's beautiful. So then I walk in the door and I go, hey, how's it going? And she says something and I go, oh, I'm ready. Could it be little Esther, terrified, scared out of her mind, willing to risk it all, sitting there going, okay, God, just show up, just show up. If he says anything, I'm just going to invite him to the banquet. If I can just get him to the banquet. So the king goes, what do you want up to half my kingdom? Can you just please come to a banquet today? Sure, I'm in. That's a request. If I can just get him to the banquet. And so then he comes. He brings his little punk buddy Haman with him. And they're eating, and they're drinking, and they're feasting, and they're enjoying all that Esther has prepared. And we pick it up here in verse 6. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, so spirits are good. 
The king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Round two, almost identical, right? Hey, here you go. I came to your feast. You fed me well. You gave me good wine. I'm excited. I'm in good spirits. Now, what is it you want? Teed up again. And Haman's there. Now she can go, this guy, I want him dead and my people spared. But what does she say? Look at verse seven. Then answer, Esther answered, my wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king and if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to a feast that I will prepare for them and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Why does she wait? It's right there. Why does she wait? We're not told. Again, commentators speculate all over the place. We're not told why she waits. But could it be, let's, let's speculate together a little bit. Could it be that God's whispering in her ear, I just want you to wait. I'm up to something here. And she's in tune with the spirit of God. And she's listening to the voice of God and she's going, okay, but God, he just set up to half the kingdom. The request is there. And God says, just wait. If you've questioned the providence of God throughout this series so far, your mind will be blown in the next two weeks what God is about to do. God's still got some work to do on the king's heart and in Haman's life. And it's all gonna happen in the next 24 hours. And so could it be that God whispers in Esther's ear, hey, I know that your request, I know what's been offered to you, I know you've got an opportunity to say what you want to say, but would you just wait? Would you just wait and just listen? I'm asking you to hold on. And she leaves room for God. She leaves room for God to show up. Man, I think that's absolutely what's taking place here, especially if you read ahead. I don't want to spoil Rustin and Jamie's stuff the next two weeks, but as you read ahead, you're going to be blown away at God's timing and how God is at work. So he tells her, just wait. So here's the, the question for us. Do we listen to the spirit that way? Do we listen to the spirit of God and to his leading and to his directing? And when opportunities present themselves, do we take a deep breath and go, God, what is it you would have me say? We just got back, all of us pastors were at a Larry Crabb conference this last week. Jamie's mentor and, and friend came in and uh, just rocked the world out of all the pastors. Okay, so if they're a little different or shell-shocked today, it's because we just had our worlds rocked by Larry. It was awesome. And I love that we're at a church that invests in its staff. That it was unbelievable. But Larry made, one of the, made this statement one night. He said, uh, don't outrun God. And by that, he said this, sometimes we need to wait for the spirit to move instead of moving ahead of the spirit. And if you're outpacing Jesus or outpacing God in your life, uh, then God's not in it and you're, you're gonna find yourself in trouble. So can you wait in a culture and a society that everything is instantaneous? Can you wait for the Lord? Can you listen to the spirit of God? And can you move in step? Can you move, Larry's word is hand in hand with the spirit of God in your world? So I'll give you some practical, just random examples. Maybe you've got a wayward child, a wayward kid. Uh, this has happened to me multiple times. And uh, you catch them doing something they shouldn't do. Ha <laughs> ha, I got you red-handed. Now you're gonna hear from dad all the things that you did wrong. And I just wanna beat them, not physically, but just beat them with the Bible on. Here's all the things you did wrong. I've caught you. And what would it look like if the spirit of God said, hey, they're already feeling guilty enough. There's already guilt and shame there. Can you wait? 
Can you wait and maybe have a conversation with them tomorrow instead of a discipline time with them now? And what does it look like to wait? To wait for the Lord. Maybe you have a, a, a deal with your spouse, an issue with your spouse that you know you got to address and deal with, but you want to deal with it in a way where you just want to win the fight. You just want to be right. And you're ready and you're locked and loaded and you've got a great argument. And if you were to have the argument, you would be right. But God's saying, would you wait? Would you get your heart right? Would you let me work on their heart a little bit? So instead of winning an argument, you might win your spouse back to you and closer to Jesus. Can you wait in that moment? Can we wait? Do we listen to the Lord? I'm going I'm to propose this. Uh, at any given time, for those of us that know Christ, you know Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells you. You have two voices in your head all the time. One is the voice of the Lord calling you, challenging you, asking you to move and step with him. Do we hear that voice? Sometimes it's a whisper. Sometimes it's so loud we can't silence it. I think that's contingent upon where we're at with our Father and how well we're walking with the Lord. But can you hear the voice of the Lord in your life when he leads you and when he guides you? Here's the other voice that we have. We have the voice of the enemy, right? What's John 8 tell us? He's a liar and he's been lying since birth. He speaks his native tongue when he lies. And so he's in your ear constantly chirping, only telling you lies denying the promises of God, telling you things that aren't true, and he's just chirp, 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 chirp. And guys, there are times that voice gets so loud that we can't help but listen to it. And maybe the challenge is to identify which voice we're listening to. Which voice are we listening to? And can we identify the voice of the evil one in our life so, so much so that when we hear it, we know it's a lie? And we can, we can start praying and asking God to, to counter that voice. Do we know how God, for me, God, God knows this, and, and I've told you this before. The enemy lies to me when it comes to fear and failure and insecurity. So when God asks me to move and I start to move and the voice gets in my hair and go, ear and goes, you're going to fail. You're going to screw this up. Who are you to say that? I go, you know what? You're probably right. And then I don't move. And I miss out. Can we listen to the voice of the Lord? And do we give him a louder voice than the voice of the enemy? I'll tell you a story. I'll set this story up of where this was. This is not a positive story for me. Uh, I, I totally blew it, and I'm still dealing with some of it. But uh, my son, Logan, he's, he's now 14. When he was five years old, started playing baseball. Uh, and he was surprisingly good at baseball, unlike me. Uh, good at baseball. We started playing with a, with a coach who, we started in coach pitch where they, they toss the ball in there and if they don't hit it, they hit off the tee. I mean, T-ball style, just a little five-year-old tottering, tottering around. Uh, and we met this coach, incredible man of God. And I remember it was our second season with this coach. He sat all the parents together and he said this, uh, hey, we got a bunch of five and a half, six-year-olds out there. Uh, I don't see any major league talent on this team. I'm going to do my best to teach him baseball, but there's not a future Major League Baseball player out there. So I'll, I'm going to tell you this, though. I see a lot of future husbands and a future fathers on this team. And so I'm going to teach them baseball, but I'm going to invest in their character. I'm going to make them the best fathers and husbands I can possibly make them. Well, I looked at my wife. I heard that, and I said, I don't care where this guy goes. We're going to play for this man until Logan retires. I mean, it's just the reality of how this is going to be. You give me a man of character like that. And this man loved the Lord. And so for 16 seasons, my son played baseball with this man. About season 14, he held another parents meeting and said, hey, here's the deal. I've got cancer. I've got liver cancer. 
So we prayed with them and we prayed with them. And you know, Ethan was on the team. His son was on the team as well. He we went down to the hospital and he's getting pumped full of all the chemo and garbage they're putting through his body. And we're just praying with this man. He's weeping together. And for a period of time, he beats cancer. It looks great. Prognosis is awesome. So we play season 15. We get into season 16. And he pulls me aside and goes, hey, the cancer's back. And it's everywhere. It's everywhere. There's no treatment I can go on. Uh, it's kind of just right out the rest of my time. And we're all devastated. And he pulls the team together and goes, this is our last season together. We're not going to be able to play together after this. I'm getting too sick. And I mean, all the parents were all crying together. I mean, it was, it was terrible. And I don't know about you guys. You guys, a lot of you live out in the world. And so you have a lot of lost friends, which is awesome. I happen to work at a church. My friends are all pastors. I don't have a whole lot of, of, of direct contact with the lost world, those that don't know Christ. So baseball is my outlet to the lost world. And I spend a lot of time praying for the other dads that are on the baseball team saying, God, would you give me an opportunity to share the hope of Jesus Christ with these guys, whether it be by my actions or by my words. Would you just give me that opportunity? So there was one particular dad that I've been praying for. I'm praying for for a couple of seasons. And we bring the boys, they're warming up. We're there about an hour before the game and the boys are warming up over here and it's me standing there, this other dad that I've been praying for. And then the dad didn't know real well standing over here. He was new to the team. I just met him. And we're all sitting there and we're talking fantasy football and baseball and whatever. I mean, we're just shooting, shooting the breeze. And this man over here that I've been praying for begins to kind of tear up. And he looks at me and I go, hey, what's going on? He goes, you know, my son's been asking me a lot of questions about death with coach, you know, getting ready to die and everything. He's asking me a lot of questions about death and what happens after you die. And I don't have any answer for him. I have no context. I have no category to even think beyond death. Now, I don't know about you guys, but this is the pastoral equivalent to the man that walks up to Jesus and goes, what must I do to inherit eternal life, right? I mean, the window is so open for the gospel right here. This guy is contemplating his own mortality. He's contemplating the afterlife. The door is open. All I want to do is kick that open and go, oh, let me tell you about Jesus Christ and all the love and the hope and the future you could have for him. And so I take a deep breath and I'm ready to hit this man with the gospel. And I'm going, God, thank you. Finally, this opportunity I've been praying for is here. And I take that breath and the enemy gets in my ear and says, you don't know this guy. This dad's new. He's going to judge you. You're going to have to sit by him for the next two and a half hours watching this baseball game and he's going to think you're one of those weird Jesus guys. He's going to label you. He's going to judge you. And I exhaled and I looked at this man that's crying out for the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ and I'll never forget what I said. I said, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. And then I let it go. And we started talking about something else. And I caved to the voice of the enemy in my ear, and I, I listened to the lies of the evil one, and I missed out on the opportunity, the very opportunity I was praying for to share the gospel with this guy because I listened to the voice of the enemy and the voice of fear. And like I said, mine runs rampant with judgment and criticism and failure. Guys, I, don't tell, I tell you that story for two reasons. One, I want you to know as pastors, we are in this with you. We get up here all the time and say what? Get God, get real, get out there. Guys, I get how difficult it is to get out there and to share the hope of Jesus Christ with a hurting and dying world. 
Sometimes it's easier to stand up here and share the gospel, which we'll do in just a moment, than it is to share one-on-one with somebody that you walk life with. I get it. We're in this with you. We're in this with you, but man, do not. The heartache I feel over the, the, the loss of that opportunity is immense. I haven't seen that man since, nor do I think I ever will. We just don't cross paths anymore. And I missed an opportunity to be the voice of truth in his life. Don't listen to the voice of the enemy. Identify it. Know what it sounds like so that you can call it out and say, God, that's not true. I want to listen to your promises. I want to listen to your, your truth. And I want to listen to that voice over the other one. Second reason I, I tell you that is we got to identify. We've got to learn to identify the voice of the evil one so that when we hear it, we can say, no, no, no. These are the promises of God. Do we know truth? God has given us this gift in the word of God, this thing called the Bible. Part of the reason why I don't interact with the screen much and read from my Bible is I want you guys to force you to bring your Bibles and read your Bibles and invest in this thing called the word of God. This is an incredible gift he's given us, full of promises to his sons and his daughters. Do we know it? Do we know it in here? Do we, as the psalmist say, meditate on it day and night so that when lies come up, we can go, that's not true because I know truth and I will rest in truth. And I will listen to the promises of God. We got to be able to identify that because we're listening to one voice or the other all the time. So here's what I need you to understand as we listen to this. Uh, Jesus Christ set the perfect example for us. Perfect example. He finds himself in a garden at the end of his ministry and he prays this prayer to God. He says, God, if there's another way, if there's any other way, can we do that? Because I don't want to go through with what's about to take place. He makes his request to God, but then he says what? Not my will, but your will be done. I will trust you because you are a good, good father. And I will risk whatever you ask me to risk for the sake of others. God tells him there is no other way. And so the son of God walks up a mountain and they crucify him on a cross because I'm a sinner. Because I make mistakes. Because I am am a, a messed up human being, the same as you. And for my sin and for your sin, Jesus Christ dies on a cross and risks everything for the benefit of us a couple thousand years later, sitting in this room and all the other venues and campuses. You see, that's the gospel message. Because God loved us, he sacrificed his son so that we could be put back in relationship with the Father. And there are some of you here, some of you watching online, some of you at the other venues that are sitting there going, I know nothing of this Jesus guy, this hope that you talk about. This idea of eternal life, it just doesn't make sense to me. I don't get it. It's because you don't know Jesus Christ. And my, my hope and prayer has been this, that you would sit there for a moment and you would contemplate these hard questions and that you would wrestle with the reality that God loves you, that you are a beloved son or a beloved daughter of God and he is calling out to you and he longs for you to come be a part of his family, to place your faith in his son, Jesus Christ, to admit and to kneel before the cross and just say, God, I am not perfect, but I believe you are. And I believe your son was who he said he was. And because of that, I want to place my faith in you this morning. The Bible says you become a new creation in that moment. The old is gone. The new has come. And God begins to change you from the inside out. It's not instantaneous. This is not, hey, come to Christ and life is, is rainbows and unicorns. It's not. But come to Jesus Christ and no matter what life throws at you, you walk through it hand in hand with the Father, the all-powerful God of the universe. And that's a whole lot different. And you can begin to live with the hope of eternal life in the future. 
So here's been my prayer, and this will continue to be my prayer. There are some of you here this morning, chapel, venue, Northridge, Cactus, wherever you're at, that need to respond to this gospel message, that need to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And so after the service, I'm going to be up here, Rustin, Ray, Rick, Ryan, we're going to be, in a, we're going to be up front. We would love to talk to any of you that have questions about this, that are interested in this. Now, let me, let me warn you of one thing. Maybe the Spirit's calling you. And maybe right now in your seat, you're sitting there and you're squirming. And you're going, oh my gosh, he's talking to me. This is the Spirit talking to me. And, and God's calling you to, to make a move, to talk to somebody before you leave here this morning. It doesn't have to be us. It can be anybody. But anybody that knows Christ, that you would talk to them. And the Spirit's telling you to, to move, to take a step towards him. My guess would be because the enemy wants nothing more than for you not to listen to that voice. He's in your other ear telling you, do not do it. Do not do it. Don't move. Which voice are you going to listen to? One that's offered you eternal life, that longs for you to come and be a part of the family of God, or the one that's lying? Man, my hope would be that you would have the courage to come forward. You will find nothing but open arms to love and embrace you and to begin this journey with you. But he risked it all for the benefit of others because he loved you and I. What are we willing to risk? Who are we listening to in and out of our lives? Let's wrap this story up because we still got to deal with this awesome Haman character who's just a gem of a dude. Uh, he leaves the party, right? He's feeling good. The wine has been flowing and he stumbles out of the palace and he walks by Mordecai and he's just full of rage and, ah, oh, I hate that Mordecai. But it says he restrains himself. I'll give him that. He does have some character, I guess. He restrains himself in the moment. And he goes home, and what does he do? He's feeling bad. He's feeling upset. He's angry at Mordecai. He does what so many of us can tend to do. Uh, when life doesn't go our way, when we don't get what we want, he gathers all of his friends and his family around, and he starts to brag about himself. I'm a big deal. Look at all my stuff. In fact, look at all my kids. Look at all my friends. I'm a powerful man. I'm a big deal. And he begins to build himself up with pride. Why? Because he's feeling a little angry at Mordecai didn't bow to him, didn't give him the reverence he deserved in his mind. And so he puffs himself up. He starts bragging on himself, filling himself with all sorts of pride and arrogance. And then his wife, who is clearly a gem as well, looks at him and says, you know what? You're right. You're right, Haman. You are a big deal. In fact, no one else was at that party but you. Man, you are a big deal. You know what you should do? You should build a stake 75 feet tall. Put it right in the middle of town. And tomorrow, you stick Haman on that stake and just let him sit there till the birds peck on them. And Haman goes, that's a great idea. I like it. And he goes to sleep that night dreaming about Mordecai hanging on the gallows. You're going to find out next week, the king's not so lucky. He can't quite sleep. God's in the midst of doing something awesome. And everything is going to change in the next two chapters because God is always at work. God is providentially always at work. Even in the midst of a wicked man like Haman, God's still at work. But he puffs himself up. Pride comes before the fall, says Proverbs, right? Haman's going to fall. He's going to get his. So if you like a good ending, you're going to, he's going to get his. It's awesome. Uh, but pride comes before the fall. He puffs himself up. He doesn't even see it coming. Doesn't even see the setup on the horizon because he's so blinded by his pride. Let's not, not, let, not let that be said of us. 
Well, guys, I don't know where you're at. I don't know what's moving in you. I know some of you, maybe God's calling you to his kingdom. Maybe some of you are wrestling with this, listening to the spirit and listening to the voice of the enemy. Maybe it's, it's God calling you to move. God's calling you to do something. He's asking you to risk something. So I could give you a bunch of examples, a bunch of practical, here's what to do next, five Ps to living a better life, but that's not, not of God. My prayer has been that the spirit of the Lord would speak to your hearts, that he would tell you exactly what he wants you to do with this, but he wants you to do something. Maybe it's a face. Maybe there's a name rolling around in your mind right now and God's saying, you need to go talk to that individual. The timing is right. Yeah, but God, I've talked to him so many times. I've shared Jesus with him so many times before. I've told him what I thought so many times before. And God's going, yeah, but you did it in your, your timing. Now my timing is perfect. Would you move? Would you move in hand in hand with the spirit and see what God does? Maybe it's a kid. Maybe you got a wayward child and, and God's telling you this morning, the timing is right. Would you call him? Would you text him? Would you tell him you love him? Maybe he's telling you, can you not talk to him today? Because you've been on him every single day for the last week. Can you give him some space? Can you let me move? Can you let me work? I don't know. That's the beauty of the Holy Spirit. What he's saying to you, I don't know. I don't have to conjure that up. God's at work. You're God's children. God's gonna move. God's gonna tell you exactly what he wants you to say, what he wants you to do and how he wants you to move. Can you hear his voice? Do you believe he's a good father? Because he is. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to interact with your word. God, I pray as I've been praying that your spirit would move, that you would do what only you can do. God, that you would grab hearts, that you would direct, that you would guide your children, your sons, your daughters in step with your spirit. God, we would not get ahead of you. We would not drag behind you, but we would walk hand in hand with you. And God, I pray for the conversations that are gonna come, whether it be here in this room or outside these walls. God, I pray for courage for those that you know you're drawing into, you're calling into your family right now. God, I pray you give them courage to speak to somebody before they leave one of these venues today. And God, as always, we will give you all praise, all glory, and we are so grateful and thankful that we get to be a part of your church in this thing called the family of God. We love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.